Okay, let's see. Uh, we've got the prophecy update done. We'll go ahead and read a psalm, and then we'll have our uh, sermon text and our sermon for the week. I'm going to read you the 111th psalm. Uh, it begins with these wonderful words. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Excuse me. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praises endure forever. Okay, today our sermon is entitled, uh, Whose Young Woman Is This? This is Ruth 2, verses 1 through 7. All right, and uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read you those verses. Ruth 2, starting in the first verse, says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in her house. Uh, Here's a question for you. What menial task is it that you would never, never consider doing? Is there a job that you would simply refuse to do? In Israel, outside of being a leper and kept away from the people, which was mandated by the law, or being a beggar because you were physically unable to work, the lowest sort of existence would be to sort through other people's leftovers. We see this all the time in our own towns as well. There are people that sort through the garbage looking for food or something they can sell as scrap. I take care of a mall out on Siesta Key and the 7-Eleven next to it, and I see people in the dumpster every morning at 7-Eleven pulling out food to have for their morning breakfast or whatever. I see it all the time. And we pass by these people and we try to ignore what they're doing. In the third world, it is even worse. There are entire clans of people who live in dumps and they sort out the last remains of anything of value, which to most of us is no value at all. In the Philippines, they have entire clans of people that don't just live there. They've lived there for generations, and this is what they do. They just clean the dumps, and they search for a little bit to exist on, and it's the stinkiest place you've ever been there in the tropics in one of their dumps. In Israel, there were poor people just like everywhere else, and in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Israel's told that they will always have poor among them. There in the the 11th verse of Deuteronomy 15, it says this, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. It's an issue that Jesus repeats in Matthew 26, 11. There will always be poor among us. 
But the law, anticipating this, made provisions for the poor. One of them is something called gleaning. It's where poor people were allowed to follow along behind after the reapers of grain and pick up the grain that would fall to the ground. A gleaner then would be our modern dumpster diver, a person who looks for scraps in a world of abundance. But to God and hopefully to us, the value of the person is not determined by that person's wealth, nor is poverty a sign of being outside of God's favor. I've got a little funny thing to tell you about actually going through dumpsters. So on my 50th birthday, my mom wanted to bring me something. And I said, I'll be at the mall taking care of uh, things there. She pulled behind the mall and she looked at me and she said, if I had known 50 years ago today what I see right now, I would not have had you. Because I was going through the dumpster and I was actually separating the recycles because I hate the waste. But uh, anyway, she, it was kind of a funny thing. But there you go. Our text verse for today comes from uh, Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Throughout history, the poor have been oppressed, even in the land of Israel, but this was never an intent of the law. Instead, the law graciously made provisions for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. There is another type of poverty that the law is set against as well, and that is spiritual poverty. The law served its purpose, which was to point us to Christ, and in Christ is found freedom from that spiritual poverty now, as well as freedom from all types of poverty, some wondrous day which is yet future to us. We will see a poor woman take advantage of the provisions of the law in today's story, and we will see someone take notice of her as she works. In our own impoverished state, Christ has taken notice of us, too. He has given us his word. Some of us are filled to abundance with it. We reap a great harvest of understanding and insight from it. We've got a guy that comes in here on our uh, Thursday night Bible studies, and his name is Berkeley, and he is one of these people. I am ready to say something about whatever we're talking about, and he preempts me almost every time. He knows the Bible so well, and he remembers verses, and he's got this great abundance of reaping out of the Bible what is in there. And it just, it, it, my hair standing up thinking about it, how some people are given such a great gift. Others are left to glean what they can just simply get out of the pages of the Bible, finding every single passage difficult to grasp and difficult to understand. In such a case, it is up to those who have the abundant harvest to at least share their knowledge with an open hand and not charge for what has been so graciously given to them. The parallels are seen in the book of Ruth, which is a part of God's superior word. And so let's go to that wondrous book right now and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is Faithful Ruth. This is verses one and two. Verse 1 says, there was a relative of Naomi's husband. Chapter 2 begins right where chapter 1 left off. Naomi and Ruth have returned from Moab to Israel, arriving in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. As we saw last week, it is at this same time of year that Jesus was crucified and then he rose from the dead. Here, sometime shortly after their arrival, it mentions a relative of Naomi's husband. The term relative here should not be confused with another term which will be introduced later, which is translated as close relative. The word here is moda. It comes from the word yada, to know or an acquaintance. The word is masculine, and so it is a male relative. 
This word then denotes someone with whom another is intimately acquainted with, and thus it is a near relative. It's important to understand that this word here is being tied to Naomi's husband, while the other word for close relative in chapter 3 and 4 is tied to Naomi and to Ruth. Later, when we understand who each pictures and what each word means, we'll understand what this story is telling us. Verse 1 continues, a man of great wealth. The Hebrew here says, Ish gebor chayil. It's a phrase which is widely translated and which needs to be carefully evaluated because it points to the most important man in the book who in turn pictures the most important man who has ever lived. The phrase has been translated as a man of standing, an influential man, a worthy man, a man of outstanding character, a mighty man of strength, a mighty man of wealth, a powerful man, etc. The idea which seems to be implied is that he is a strong and substantial prince of a man in power, in authority, in riches, honor, in virtue. All of these are implied by the idea of wealth. It doesn't merely mean riches, but it means rich in all ways. He is a type of Christ. Verse 1 continues, of the family of Elimelech. This person is of the same family as that of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And his name, I want to remind you, means God is king, or possibly my God is king. The term for family here is mishpacha, and it indicates a direct family tie between him and Elimelech. Verse 1 continues. His name was Boaz. The name Boaz means in strength, or possibly in him is strength, meaning the Lord. Boaz pictures the Lord Jesus. Now, as we continue through this story, I want you to keep that in mind. Eventually, we'll discover why the story was given and what it ultimately pictures. I will love you, O Lord, my might. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, too. He is my deliverer through day and night. My God, my strength, him I will trust all my days through. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, it is he. I will call upon the Lord with elation. He is worthy to be praised now and for all eternity. So shall I be saved from my enemies, from those who come only to destroy. The Lord will protect my soul and lead me in paths of eternal joy. Verse 2. So Ruth the, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi. Now it might seem peculiar that it repeats Ruth the Moabitess here instead of just saying Ruth. This is actually important to remember because she is in the land of Israel and she's looking to participate in the fruits of the land despite being a Gentile. The use of the term once again then calls to mind legal phraseology. Moab is who she is. Israel is where she is. And the privileges and the customs of the land are what she is looking forward to. She is looking to gain the advantage of Israelite privileges despite being a Gentile. The verse also uses the name Naomi, pleasantness of the Lord, even though she wanted to be called Mara or bitter. These words are selected carefully and keep leading us down a path of beauty and towards that which is really wonderful. Verse 2 continues, Please let me go to the field. Using a general phrase here, she uses the word na. Na means basically I pray. Na hasadeh. Let me, I pray, to the field. She asks for permission to go out rather than simply saying that she is going out. What she intends to do is a self-demeaning act which will reflect on Naomi. And so, despite her needing to go, she still asks for permission. There is only the thought of respect and good intentions in her request, and it can only be taken in that way by Naomi. It would be like you're down at the beach, and you've got the whole family together, and Grandpa's out there, and he's playing ball with 
one of the grandchildren, and by accident, the ball gets thrown into the uh, water, and it starts to drift out from shore. Instead of getting up and saying, oh, I'll get it, which could hurt Grandpa's feeling, the dad knows that he is no longer capable of swimming in the tide. And so he says, Dad, do you mind if I'll get it? Both know that it is a necessity that Dad should get it, but making it a question is intended to protect Grandpa's family standing. This is what Ruth is doing for Naomi. She's being gracious and asking to do what she alone can and must do. Another thing to note is that the word for field is not intended to mean a plain, but rather plowed and cultivated land. It's similar to our idea of the word field in English, which comes from the German word fold, which is a clearance of felled trees. This word for field uh, in the Hebrew is in the singular. It's not plural. Another important point for us to remember. There is one cultivated land which would be marked by stones or maybe a tree to delineate where that uh, piece of property ended, but the land ran continuously. Farmers would own their own property and they'd cultivate to the edges of it and probably leave just a little walkway along the sides, but there wouldn't be these big stone borders or anything like that. This type of marking is noted in Deuteronomy 19.14 and it shows why the term field is singular here. It also shows the respect that people were to have for the rights and property of others. Here's what it says. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So they'd merely have a stone and that marked where the land or property of the land ended and they were not to mess with those things. Verse two continues. And glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. The word glean that we use here in English comes from a French word, which is glaner. And all that simply means is to gather uh, ears of corn or some other grain. Gleaning from a biblical perspective is something that was specifically authorized under the law of Moses. It's found in several passages, including this one from Deuteronomy chapter 24, which explains why gleaning is mandated. Here's what it says. When you reap your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your, vi of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. This allowance was given as a means of caring for, as it says, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. All three of these applied to Ruth in some sense. She was a stranger, which means a foreigner. She was by oath united to Naomi, whose husband was dead, and therefore she is in essence fatherless, and her own husband has died, and thus she is a widow. In every respect, she is the person to whom God had directed this mandate of the law, showing that his care was not just directed to the wealthy people or just to the people of Israel, but to all people who would unite themselves to him in the land that he gave to them. And so Ruth is asked to follow this ancient custom, which was especially directed to one in her state. And she says, after him in whose sight I may find favor. I'm not really keen on the way the uh, New King James Version translates this. The word favor is literally grace, and yet they continuously change it from the old uh, King James Version grace to 
favor throughout the Old Testament. I don't like that they do that. This phrase is very is in a very particular structure in the Hebrew. Her thought is as if there is only one reaper who is the owner. In other words, all of the laborers who are actually doing the reaping are merely hired hands. And if you can see the connection, it is pointing to Christ. Even though his words in John 10 are speaking of sheep, the concept remains true for any hired help. Here's what he says there in John 10. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. There is one in charge of the grain, and all others are his stewards. It is from him alone that grace is to be found. Little hints such as these should help us to reflect on the pictures of this book, this wonderful book entitled Ruth, which are shouting out for us to see. Verse 2 continues, And she said to her, Go, my daughter. <clears throat> Naomi knows that Ruth's words are of pure intent and that her actions are necessary to sustain the two of them, so her approval is given. In this past verse, we can see Ruth's humility and great love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, as well as her willingness to spare no hardship in order to take care of not only herself, but her mother-in-law as well. As Matthew Henry so courteously notes about this, he says, Observe Ruth's humility. When providence had made her poor, she cheerfully stooped to her lot. High spirits will rather starve than stoop. Not so Ruth. Nay, it is her own proposal. She speaks humbly in her expectation of leave to glean. In Ruth here, we can learn proper respect for others and especially towards our family as we speak. There's a way of communication which will convey an idea and yet offend, as we found out before uh, Bible study this morning. And there is a way of communicating that same idea without offending. Words are, in fact, very sharp arrows, and they can be painful when spoken without thought. But we see in Ruth a person who is willing to ask permission to do what she must do in order to protect the heart of the one that she must do it for. If we can learn and perfect this in our own speech to others, we will serve as really good examples of the noble sort of person that Ruth is. Verse 3, Then she left and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. The word for the reapers here is ha-kutsrim. It comes from the word katsar, which means down. In essence, the reapers bring down the standing grain. This word is used metaphorically, for the consequences of behavior, be it righteous or wicked. This symbolism continues in the New Testament, such as in the parable spoken by Jesus in Matthew 13, where he says this, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Here are the workers, and they're in the field working and harvesting, and along comes this foreigner who wants to participate in a small way. A picture of us should probably come to mind. Lawson says that there are some whose virtue and industry lie only in their tongues. They say and do not. But Ruth was no less diligent in business than wise in resolution. Said differently, her diligence matches her words. 
She could have said that she was going out to the field to glean and then went out and did something illicit in order to get the grain that was needed. But the record of her actions matches the record of her words. And so again, Matthew Henry gives us a thought on this verse for us to remember. He says, no labor is a reproach. Sin is a thing below us, but we must not think anything else so to which providence calls us. She was an example of regard to her mother and of trust in providence. Now, from time to time, I do bring up my own weekly jobs. Even though I preach and I teach the Bible, I have a few jobs. One of them is that I mow lawns. And yesterday afternoon, I had to mow a lawn. It was so bad. The guy called me, says the grass is up to my waist. And I got there and he was lying. It was one eighth of an inch below my waist. So it was terrible. And I had to do this with a push mower and I only got three quarters of it done. I was out there so long. But I also pick up garbage. I recycle scrap metal. Some people here know this. They bring me their old cans and I use those. And then I take that and I uh, buy lunch for the guys at missionary work after a word on Saturday. I clean toilets every day of the week except for Sunday. I do this so that we can pay our bills. At home, I wash the dishes and I do the laundry and I even fold the laundry. So together with my wife, we work together and we have many jobs that others would find menial or maybe even below contempt. We're happy and we live for the Lord through our work and through our lives. As Matthew Henry said, sin is below us, but no form of work that we do is and we're content with that. Ruth's example is one of many that shows us that the Lord favors our work in whatever we do, and in him alone is our true reward. So I would hope that the same is true with each one of you. Should you find yourself in a bad spot, you know, you lose your job or you get a demotion or something, there is nothing degrading about picking up the scraps left by others in the fields of Bethlehem. Verse 3 continues, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech says here in Hebrew, Ve'yikir yikreha, and her hap happened. What seems like chance is so much more than that. It is an obvious shaping of the path before her and a directing of her every step which came from the unseen hand of the Lord so that his plans and his purposes would come about. His direction, even in the smallest of events, link together until they form a perfectly executed plan We might think it's chance, we might think it's fortune, we might think it's luck, but God views these events as careful design to bring about his good end. In the case of Ruth's first day of gleaning to provide for herself and for Naomi, God directed her steps, as it says, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. This is especially poignant because, as I noted earlier, there are no real field divisions. There's just this one long, wide, and very expansive field of land divided by ancient stones that she may not have even seen as she walked. And so to end on any particular parcel would seem like chance, but to come to the land that belonged to her relative, Boaz, would have to be an occurrence of truly remarkable odds, much more than chance would allow. Surely God's directing of her little feet was intended for his glory and for her good as well as for the good of all people who are redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ, whom she leads to. Little steps leading in Bethlehem to immensely great things. I indeed with water baptize you, but one mightier than I is coming, one who will inspire, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, it is true. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, all at his command. But the chaff he will burn with voracious fire outside of heaven's door. Be ready, for the king is coming, 
be prepared for that great and awesome day. Even now the drums are furiously drumming for the Lord to come and take his children away. Our second thought is the Lord be with you. Verse four, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. If nothing else, if nothing else in these verses we're looking at today, this verse here has to strike a chord with each of us. If Boaz is to picture Christ as he does and as we're going to see, then he will picture Christ in many ways. These words, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, is an exacting picture of Christ to come, as is noted by the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Matthew reached back to this verse from Micah, and he cites it in the gospel record to show that, in fact, behold, the Lord came from Bethlehem. Verse 4 continues, And said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. Yehovah Imachem are his words to the reapers. It is the tradition of the Jewish people today that the divine name of the Lord was never spoken. Anytime they read his name nowadays, they replace it with the word Adonai instead of saying the name. However, this verse implies that the blessings were, that were made in the name of the Lord were using the name of the Lord. Had he said Adonai, as others do in the Bible when speaking directly to the Lord, the Bible would have said this, but it doesn't. The name of the Lord is not only acceptable to be spoken, it is a blessing in and of itself. And so Boaz calls out to his men, Yehovah Imachem. Verse 4 continues, and they answered him, the Lord bless you. In response to the master's greeting, they reply, Yeberechecha Yehovah. At least in Boaz's field, there's harmony between the master and his worker. There should be something that stirs in each one of us, in our hearts, as we endeavor to emulate this when we greet others as well. Whether such greetings were commonplace in Israel or whether Boaz was the exception, the words of Boaz are exceptional. They reflect a state of cordiality that transcends our greetings of hello, or maybe we'll say, hey, how's it going? Instead, they redirect the plainly human tone of our words towards the divine and towards the creator. If we were to consider the fullness of the meaning of Boaz's words, it would be comparable to saying something like, may the Lord stand with you, guide you, protect you, uphold you, strengthen you, and heap upon you actively all things that are good and desirable for you to receive. And in return, the reaper's words would be like saying, may the Lord give you abundance, joy, contentment, fruitfulness, strength, and many other blessings. By tying the name of the Lord in with the blessing, it indicates a desire for the person to receive all that the Lord would choose to adorn that person with. As I said a few minutes ago, the word for the reapers here is hakotsrim, which comes from the word katsar. It means down. We would call these reapers the downers. They're just mere servants, not worthy of a kind eye or even a note of blessing. But instead, Boaz gives them both. What a picture of the Lord he makes in this regard. The depth of what is spoken in this fourth verse of chapter 2 is the reason why it is my personal favorite verse of the entire book. It is so much more than a greeting between people, but it is a look back to a harmonious interaction into the future in the hope where such a re interaction is the standard, not the exception. It is a state which all of the redeemed of the Lord should desire right here and right now and for all eternity to come at that time when the Lord truly provides for his people what these words imply. May the Lord give you increase more and more. May he bless you and your children too. May you be blessed by the Lord, abundance at your door. 
by the Lord who made heaven and earth and me and you. May his hand of strength support you all your days, and may he bless you with long life and health. May his glory rest upon you in all ways and shower upon you all of heaven's wealth. Our third thought is beautiful Ruth, verses 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? This is the first verse to include both Boaz and Ruth together. Earlier, Boaz was described as a man of great wealth, which is the Hebrew word chayil. I noted that that word indicated not just material wealth, but riches in all ways. However, he was lacking a wife. So the question is, what kind of man was Boaz before he was married? Anybody? He was ruthless. Ruthless. That will now soon change. In this verse is found the second meaning of Ruth's name. As we saw in chapter 1, her name can either mean friend or companion or beauty or looker. It depends on the root word used to determine the end result. The uncertainty means that it is probably a play on both words. The fulfillment of the first half of her name was when she clung to Naomi as a permanent friend and companion, vowing never to leave her except by death. The fulfillment of the second meaning of her name is seen as Boaz notices her amongst the other workers, indicating her beauty, which was noticeable. She is a looker. Because of the eye which is alighted on this radiant beauty, Boaz tactfully went up to his servant who was in charge of the reapers. The word for this guy is Hanitzav. He's the one standing. While the others are bending over the sickle, downing the grain, he is standing over them in superintendence. It is to him who Boaz goes with his question. It shows a propriety in his demeanor, which he does not want, want tarnished by just asking anyone. He's being careful about his eyes, and he's trusting in his chief reaper to maintain his decorum, something he may not get from one of the subordinate reapers. And his question is, Lemi hana'ara hazot. It is not who is that young woman. Instead, it is whose young woman is this. Even to his servant in charge, he's being careful with his words. To ask who is that young woman would show a direct and personal interest in her, and perhaps she's already taken. Rather, he asked who she belongs to. Whose young woman is this? To whom does she belong? What family does she belong to? Whose daughter is she? Whose, whose, oh, perish the thought, whose wife is she? This young woman has beauty, which has caught his eye. She handles herself in a dignified way rather than a pauper or a beggar. And she's diligently about her business rather than idly talking and only half-heartedly working. Boaz sees her, and no doubt the strings of his heart are pulled. And we're going to see that as we continue through the uh, book of Ruth. Verse 6, So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Boaz asked specifically about the young woman. In Hebrew, it's ha-na'ara. However, the response from his chief reaper is vague. She is a young Moabite woman. Our translation here doesn't record what's actually happening. There's no definite article in the Hebrew in front of young woman as he speaks. To him, she's just another foreigner who has come to pick up what is left over from the fields of his master and from the land of Israel. Outside of a few Hebrew scholars and two very obscure translations, no other translation that I could find captures the sense of what's being relayed here. Boaz is shown a discreet but 
careful interest in this looker. However, the reaper has missed the cue, and at the same time, he's looked down on her from his standing position. And though he knows who she is indirectly, he doesn't give her name, meaning he probably didn't even bother to ask. The irony of his words and what will later transpire is literally palpable. And how often do we do this in our own lives? As I said, we walk by people going through dumpsters all the time, and we just ignore them. And yet one of those people could someday get back on his feet, and he could be, you know, CEO of a large company. My mom works at a place where, uh, you know, it's a ministry. And she said one time there was a guy that came in. He, he used to come in often, I think. He was a airline captain at one time. And he got on hard straights, and there he is living on the streets. So we don't know who we're facing. And just because somebody is is down on their their situation, we should not look down on them. Everybody that is out there, whether they're eating out of a dumpster or whether they're sitting in the Ritz-Carlton downtown as an individual and a human being, and they need Jesus Christ not to be looked down on. But to him, she's just a Moabite woman. He says, though, what we've already seen once before in chapter 1, he says that she came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Ruth did not come back from Moab. She came from Moab. Only Naomi came back. Well, unless one understands the premise of the story and, and how all people came from the same original place and some of us are returning there. Verse 7, and she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Again, like when she uh, spoke to Naomi earlier, the words of Ruth are polite and they're humble. The word translated please that she uses is that same word, that word in Hebrew, which is na. More appropriately, we would say, I pray. And a request, even before going into the field to glean, was to glean after the reapers. But in this particular translation, it says among the sheaves. That does not make any sense. Okay. Later in verse 15, Boaz is going to give uh, his workers permission for her to do exactly this. So it, it doesn't make any sense. What makes much more sense in this verse is to say, please let me glean and gather the gleanings into sheaves. So she wants to make her own sheaves or her own bundles. This then would mean that she's asking permission to not only glean, but if she picks up enough to be allowed to leave it in bundles to be collected later, it would make her job much easier by not having to carry what she had picked and so she could glean more and she could do so much more quickly. So that's the intent, I believe, of what this verse is trying to tell us. Verse 7 finishes with these words. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Despite noting that she's a foreigner, the chief of the reapers is careful to note her good qualities. She arrived early. She's worked steadily and diligently right up until the present moment, taking only a short rest, as it says, in the house. And this shows another point of care by Boaz concerning his people. Because of the intense heat of the sun in Israel, and I can assure you it's very intense over there, he had set up a little shelter for them, for these workers to be able to go in and take a break in and cool down from the oppression of the heat. You know, they're bending over and the heat's on their back all day long. Ruth took advantage of this, which means that even the gleaners were treated with disrespect. Boaz has proven himself to be as decent of a man and as a boss and as a follower of the Lord as anybody that we could picture. Ruth has proven herself to be polite, humble, hardworking as a person. If you've never read the entire story of Ruth, you can probably already guess where the story is heading, at least on this intimate level between the two. Boaz will not remain a ruthless individual very much longer. It's time to stop our look into the book of Ruth for another Sunday. 
But in the week ahead, what I'd ask you to do is to think on why all these details are here, who the people picture, and what God is trying to show us about ourselves and the world in which we live. Remember, everything in this is centered on Jesus Christ and that in him is the fullness of the glory of God. He's ready to call us to a happy relationship with our Heavenly Father if we will just let him. And if you've never understood your need for Christ Jesus and the importance of his cross and what it means to you, I would ask that you would please give me just another minute to share that with you, why he came, why he died, and the wonder of his resurrection. You can join him in this, and you can walk in God's heavenly paradise for all eternity. Let me tell you how this can happen. The Bible tells us that uh, we have a problem, and that is sin. And that sin separates us from God. We cannot fellowship with God because we have sin in our lives. It's like an infection in us, and he just cannot simply uh, violate his own righteous nature and say, oh, it doesn't matter, come on up to heaven. There has to be a penalty for the sin in our lives. And Jesus Christ came to rectify that. The law says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we sin. Jesus Christ came born of God the Father and born of a woman. So he did not inherit the sin of our first father, Adam. And then he was born in Israel, which means he was born under the very law that we're looking at in all of these Old Testament stories. And so he's qualified to replace Adam because he didn't inherit Adam's sin, but he still has to prove that he can do it. And that's what the gospel records record, is that he lived perfectly, he lived without sin under the law, never violating God's law, and then he gave his life up as a sacrifice in exchange for our sins. That's why when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if you'll take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The cup is a picture of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus Christ in our place. Therefore, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. Now, some people say, well, that's cosmic child abuse. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but somebody came up with it a while ago, how God is so bad to punish his own son. That's misunderstanding the premise that Jesus Christ is God. God punished himself for us. He was willing to take what we deserve upon himself. And because of that, if we accept that payment that we cannot make for ourselves, then God will restore us to fellowship with him because of the blood of Christ. And so when he sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his son's perfection. It's what washes away our guilt. And that's the only way to be reconciled to God. And that's the only way to walk again with God in that paradise that he created and that we lost so long ago. So if you've never done the simple thing that the Bible asks you to do, call on the name of the Lord. Do it today. Call on him. Jesus, I know that I've sinned and I know I can't save myself and I would like you to save me. And he will. He'll cleanse you of your sin and God the Father will be pleased to call you his child. All right? I have a closing verse today, Isaiah 4, verse 6, and very perfectly matches what we just read about Boaz uh, giving them a, a place to rest from the heat of the sun. Here's what Isaiah says. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Good stuff, Isaiah. Next week is Ruth uh, 2, 8 through 16. It's entitled Bread and Grace in the Field of Boaz, which is our fifth Ruth sermon. And as I say each week to you before we uh, finish up and have our poem and take communion, I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, and he is there with you through them. So cling to him, and do mar he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? 
Our poem today is called, The Lord Be With You and The Lord Bless You. There was a relative of the husband of Naomi, a man of great wealth and fame. Of Elimelech's family, Boaz was his name. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor, who grace to me will yield. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. It's hot out there. Please take plenty of water. Then she left and went and gleaned after the reapers in the field, and she happened to come, it seemed, to a place where grace to her one would yield. To the part of the field belonging to Boaz came she, to the field of Boaz, who was of Elimelech's family. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered him. Yes, the Lord bless you too. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of those who reaped, Whose young woman is this? When he saw her, maybe his heart leaped. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now she lives here instead. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers, she said. Among the sheaves was her request. To me this she pled. So she came and has continued from morning until now. Though she rested a little in the house, she has worked steadily as her strength does allow. Though a foreigner to the land of Israel, Ruth has proven to be a humble, diligent soul. And though her state is lowly, as the words do tell, it is apparent that she knows the Lord is in control. Oh, if we could learn from her such a lesson to be faithful and diligent in our duties, whatever they may be, then we wouldn't spend our time fretting and a-guessing what God has in store for us. Instead, we'd trust implicitly. We'd trust that he has every step of our life properly planned and carefully selected. Even the times of trial and strife can be times which were used to get our walk corrected. So let's be like Ruth and hand our fate to the Lord, trusting that he has it all under control. And let us continue to read and love and cherish his word. Let it nourish us and feed our hungry soul. For in this there is great reward indeed as we cling to him and wait upon his return. May that day come soon and come with lightning speed, for this is what our longing hearts yearn. Thank you, O God, for the hope which is instilled in us. Thank you, O God, for our Lord and Savior, our precious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, oh, goodness gracious Lord, it is so beautiful to read these words and to try to think of where they're heading and how it pictures you. And it's such, it's such a beautiful story in and of itself. Just imagine how much more is the greater story which shows of your love for us. Yes, you stepped out of eternity yourself and you took what we deserve so that we could be reconciled to you. Uh, if that's not mercy, if that's not grace, I can't imagine what is. How can people reject the goodness of what you've done for us? Lord, I pray for the people of the world today, even those who have been killing Christians, that maybe some of them will see the error of their ways and that they will turn from that and humble themselves and be willing to die at the hands of their own friends for your sake. May it be so. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to praise you and to worship you and to do so freely here. Thank you for this church and thank you for every person that goes onto the Superior Word website and that participates in uh, what this ministry has. And we thank you for each one of them and we pray for them as well. Please guide each person here safely home after communion today and uh, just give them a great, blessed, wonderful week. We'll be sure to praise you and thank you along the way, and we'll do so in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen.
we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 11. And uh, there Paul writes these words to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over that bread. He would have said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. And he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup, and he would have said these words, blessing it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Jesus Oh, Lord, thank you for the grain which grows in the field of Bethlehem. And thank you that we can partake of that today. It's shipped all the way from Israel for us. And uh, maybe it's part of the same earth that it came out of that uh, Jesus walked on. And uh, somehow uh, we're participating in something that directly connects back to that. What a thought that is. Thank you for the wonderful blessings that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the life you've given us. Thank you for the sure hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to honor him each moment that we walk this week. and Help us to do so in the sight of others and when we're alone as well. To try our best to live lives that are honorable to you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We exalt you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.